Welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. Bridging Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, Ryan Reed, and me, Candace Smith. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Scott Manich. Scott is chair of the Church History and the History of Christian Thought Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is a specialist in Calvin and Reformed Christianity, the history of the pastoral office, and the history of exegesis in the Reformation. He recently published the First Corinthians volume in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series, published by IVP. Today's co-hosts are Ryan Reed, who specializes in John Calvin and historical theology, and Beth Stovell, who specializes in biblical studies. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it um, and leave a rating in your podcast player or consider sharing it with others through social media. And now on with the conversation. Thanks, Candice, and thank you for listening. I'm Ryan Reed. And I'm Beth Stavell. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Scott Manich. Scott, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Before we get into vocational questions and your research, we like to start with some icebreaker questions. Um, So can you tell us something interesting about yourself that you think most people don't know? Well, one thing that comes to mind, when I was a boy in seventh and eighth grade, my family lived in South Korea. So my father uh, was a university professor and I spent a year doing research connected with USAID in Seoul, Korea. So the whole family got to go. So I have some wonderful memories of living in Seoul, Korea when I was a boy. Wow. Do you like kimchi? No, but I do like bulgogi. (laughs) (laughs) Bulgogi is pretty delicious, so I get that. (laughs) Um, I know that you spent time in Geneva, Switzerland, and that you, on on your bio page, says that you and your family love hiking and biking, as my family does uh, in the Canadian Rockies. Mm. Um, did you spend time hiking and biking while you're in Geneva? Is that part of what you do there? Or? Well, not not much biking, but a lot of hiking. And my wife and I were in Geneva for two years in the mid-90s while I was doing my doctoral research. And then we had the privilege, once our daughters were born, to return to Geneva for four summers. And uh, so we would, during the week, we'd spend the week in the archive toiling over consistory records and then as a family, we'd go up into the mountains on the weekends and explore and have great fun. And we have wonderful family stories of how I would bribe my daughters with ice cream cones to keep them <laughs> hiking. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have the ice cream while hiking or was it like afterwards? No, it was always reward? afterwards. So okay. you got to okay. climb in. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't trying to figure out how you kept the ice cream from melting while hiking. So um, we were, I was uh, a master motivator, actually. <laughs> that it sounds like it. <laughs> Too bad that the Genevan hillside wasn't enough for the Switzerland yeah. mountains. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't a motivation in itself, you know, but yeah. um, that's great. Um, so, Scott, we were kind of interested uh, to know just. I, I don't know the answer to this question. How did you become a church historian? Like what led you down this path that God has uh, placed you on? Well, as it's true for all of us, it's certainly the Lord's providence. And 
it's a peculiar and special and surprising providence. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home where my father was a university professor. So I grew up in the shadow of Michigan State University. And uh, during my years uh, growing up, uh, I loved to read historical books. Uh, at Michigan State, where I did my university work, I was pre-law, uh, but was still very interested in kind of history and whether it was the history of economics or the history um, uh, of law, that was really what captured my imagination. I was planning to go to law school, and my senior year at Michigan State, I had a couple of electives to burn, and I decided to take a course on the Reformation from a scholar named Fred Graham in the Religion Department at MSU, and also a, a reading course, reading Calvin's Institutes. And by the end of that semester, uh, I decided I didn't want to become a lawyer. I wanted to pursue <laughs> historical and theological work. So. Uh, God opened the door for me to come to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the early 80s and had, like so many of us, was just um, really inspired by excellent teachers. And in particular for me, it was John Woodbridge who really uh, triggered my imagination and gave me a love for history and the desire to share it with others. As you mentioned, um, you know, your research explores John Calvin. How would you describe Calvin to someone who, who isn't as familiar with him? And what do we know about Calvin as a person? Wow. You know, we don't know as much about him as we wish we did. Uh, in Calvin's letter to Sadaletto, 1539, he has this kind of cryptic statement where he says, uh, I do not speak freely about myself. And that statement captures a lot of the person of, of Calvin. He's timid, believe it or not. He's shy. He's very um, guarded in terms of his, of, in terms of his person. And consequently, we don't know a lot of details about his, uh, his younger years, his years uh, at university. We don't know a lot about the biography of the man. Uh, so he's timid. He's shy. He's guarded. Uh, He's also clearly brilliant. Uh, he has uh, close to a photographic memory, and his memory of Scripture in partic particular is just utterly prodigious. Um, he's an organizational genius, and this is something that's often missed. Uh, he's very interested in not simply kind of high theology or speculative philosophy, but he's very interested in bringing it down to ground level and even establishing institutions to preserve his theological legacy. I'll say more about that perhaps a little bit later in this podcast. Um, in terms of personality and relationships, uh, on one level, he attracted very loyal followers. But on the flip side, he could be very harsh to pe toward people who he felt had betrayed him uh, or who had... Um, uh, walked away from his friendship. So he's a man who's who can be quite censorious, actually. And I think part of it is out of his own perfectionism and his own desire to get things right. He can be pretty critical and harsh toward those who he thinks have gotten things wrong. Um, so he's a, a mysterious person, a guarded person, an intriguing person, certainly. Um, and a man whose theological work really deserves our careful attention. Um, that I don't speak freely about myself comment, does that have anything to do with him feeling like that information might be used against him or something like that? Or is it more just from his own? Do you have any sense of that? Or is it his own sense of not 
feeling comfortable speaking about? I don't know. Do you have any? You know, Ryan, I, th- I think it comes both. It's a statement of his own um, shyness, withdrawnness. But I also think it's his conviction that as a minister of the gospel and as a theologian, he dare not command attention to himself mm, okay. give all the glory to God. So another characteristic of Calvin that I really ad- ad- admire highly is he's very wary of doing anything that would, as it were, usurp or rob God of his glory. The, the task of a pastor, the task of a theologian is not to call attention to themselves or to be a celebrity, but it's to give God the glory alone. And I wonder if that's also in play when he talks about, I, I don't want to thrust myself forward. I don't want it to be about me, Calvin. I want it to be about God and his grand and glorious purposes. Wow, Scott, I, that makes me think of something else, which is, you know, I know that today we have a, can have a celebrity culture around pastors, have big churches and things like that periodically. Was that something happening during Calvin's time at all? Were there celebrity pastors? Was that a thing? Uh, certainly there were very prominent, well-known uh, religious leaders in the Protestant Reformation, and we would certainly number Luther and Calvin and Zwingli among them. But one thing I find really interesting about Calvin is Calvin really was uh, concerned about the cult of personality and tried to dissuade it. He did that in a number of ways. So in Geneva, he was not the only pastor in town. Uh, within the city walls of Geneva, with a population of, it ranged from 12,000 to 20,000 people in his during his lifetime, uh, there were seven or eight pastors, colleagues of Calvin's, and, and they worked together. And Calvin was concerned, again, lest he be seen as the, the main show in town. So the pastors would cycle between the various parish churches within the city. And uh, Calvin wanted it to be very clear that even if he perhaps had more, more notoriety and was better known, that all of the clergy in Geneva had equal standing and, as it were, uh, given their vocations as ministers of the gospel, uh, had equal authority within the life of the church. He wasn't uh, the the czar, as it were, or he wasn't the bishop of Geneva. And he's very concerned about that. And one other thing I think that shows Calvin's self-effacement in, in really a, a beautiful way is that when he dies, he, he states very clearly that he doesn't want to be uh, buried within the city walls and he wants to be buried uh, anonymously. Uh, and so he's buried outside the city walls in a region known as Plain Palais, and we still have no idea where his where his um, grave is because he wanted to be buried, you know, uh, without calling attention to himself. And he was concerned lest pilgrims come to celebrate his life uh, at his grave. So he was a, in some respects, he could be very bold and brash and censorious, but he, could, he was also quite a humble man, I think. That's a, yeah, that's really, and, and to Beth's question, it's interesting how, I guess it's a critique perhaps of some modern megachurches, but even if there's the notoriety, they're also kind of the czar of their, of their churches maybe. So it seems like a real difference there. Um, I think there is a real difference. And um, Calvin has such a high view of God's glory, and he's so concerned lest um, we commit idolatry by um, promoting the human or uh, fashioning God in our image rather than acknowledging that God has fashioned us in his image, that 
there is a kind of caution in Calvin's life and in his theology, lest he usurp something that belongs to God. Hmm. It's, it's, hmm. yeah, it's, it's an big, important reminder. Yeah, it's really, it's beautiful to me. Um, but um, so kind of thinking, going on this, um, Scott, um, thinking about Calvin as a pastor, is there ways that we see his pastoral ministry shaping the way he thinks or does theology and in what ways do you think his ministry as a pastor kind of shaped who he was as a theologian or even shaped his theological interests or um, the ways he chose to approach it, things like this? You know, I think I'm really glad you asked that question, Ryan. It's a great question. And it allows me to stand up on my little pulpit and say something about my methodology. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, as someone who's been, was trained by a, a historian named Heiko Obermann, Heiko Obermann uh, he was a historian. He'd been uh, had taught briefly at at Harvard, and then to begin before coming to the University of Arizona, which is where I worked with him. Uh, but Obermann talked about the social history of ideas uh, and championed the idea that historians need to connect the life of the mind, the intellect on the one hand, and the the lived experience on the other, recognizing that how we live shapes how we think, and conversely, how we think shapes how we live. Those two are intertwined. Uh, And so in my work, in my writing, I'm I'm really keen, I'm interested to see how how do the practicalities of ministry life change Calvin's or help shape Calvin's theology, and the inverse, how does Calvin's theology shape the way he does ministry? And I think think it works both ways. Mm. One thing that we find in in Calvin's theology, and it surprises a lot of my students when they first read the Institutes, is how often Calvin uh, asks the question, uh, how is this useful? He's really interested. And Ryan, I suspect with all your work in Calvin and you, Daimonianism, you've, you've seen that, how often Calvin talks about, this is to be practiced in this way, or this is why this matters. Mm -hmm. Calvin not only wants to shape people's minds and um, help them construct a a biblical theological view of the world, but he also wants to help them see how this matters uh, in real life. And uh, one of my favorite parts of the Institutes, book three, uh, is there's a section that's called the little book of the Christian life. And actually, even during Calvin's lifetime, it was extracted from the institutes and published as a standalone volume, a kind of primer on how to live the Christian life. And in that, Calvin talks about vocation, and he talks about suffering and self-denial. He talks about uh, the Christian's experience as an exile, as a pilgrim on earth. And um, Calvin, Calvin sees, in other words, the connection between the lived Christian life, on the one hand, mm-hmm. and the uh, his reformed faith as a, as a theologian and as a Christian. Uh, just to go a little further, uh, Calvin was profoundly shaped by his experience as an exile. Mm-hmm. When Calvin arrives in Geneva in 1536, uh, he will spend nearly the rest of his life um, in Geneva with a three-year hiatus in Strasbourg, but he'll never return to Picardy. He'll never return home. And his experience as a, a pilgrim, we might say, or as a resident alien, 
who was often not welcomed in Geneva. Even when Calvin was a pastor there, he he dealt with a lot of antagonism and a lot of hostility from native Genevans who didn't like this foreign pastor on their soil. Calvin knew what it was like being uh, an alien and an exile. He, he understood that those biblical concepts. And I think uh, we see that working out in his theology, specifically uh, of God's providence and even God's election, that God providentially leads his people. He goes before them, even into exile, uh, even into situations where they're marginalized. God continues to sustain them. And this beautiful doctrine of predestination, which for Calvin was not a sort ultimately of a doctrine of, of horror and consternation, but a doctrine of great comfort that even if uh, our homeland renounces us, even if we have no home here on earth, we have a home with God in heaven. And God has promised that because he's adopted us as his daughters. Um, so Calvin's experience as a religious re refugee, his uh, the fact that some of his friends were, were martyred back in France. These things shape the way he thinks about the Christian life, about um, the difficulties of the Christian life, but also the joys of the Christian life. Um, so the social context uh, and the biographical context of Calvin's life really does shape uh, his theology. I could enumerate some others, but those are a few. Wow, that's, you know, something I re find really powerful about that. You know, I work in prophetic literature and particularly in exilic literature, you know, this, the writings of the exile. And it's interesting to think about how throughout the history of the church, people who have experienced exile themselves have connected to that story and said, you know, what is God doing in that? And then create a theology out of that, really thinking about what does it mean to be in exile and how do we, how do we think about God's presence with us, you mm -hmm. know, maintaining us. Um, mm -hmm. I love that that's a part I've never, I've read the Institutes. I never really thought about that aspect of why we're seeing that in his writing. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I, speaking of kind of the, maybe the biblical side of, of some of the, the readings of the Reformers or the interpretation of the Reformers. I know one of your books that you've worked on is the Reformation Commentary on 1 Corinthians. I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more about what really stuck with you uh, in terms of Reformed interpretation um, or other aspects of that project that really afterwards just continue to resonate with you. Yeah, thank you. It's been my my privilege to be part of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture project that uh, Timothy, George, and I've worked on for the last, I think now, 15 or 16 years. It's been a big project. Um, and I've had the opportunity to do the volume on 1 Corinthians, and I, I'm just now finishing the volume on 2 Corinthians. So I've learned a lot about the history of exegesis. I didn't know much about it before I uh, began uh, my editorial work for this series. Uh, but a couple things come to mind, Beth. Um, one is the commentary literature in the 16th century is expansive. The 16th and early 17th century was a great age of commentary writing. And not only most of us are familiar with the Luthers and the Calvins, and maybe the Bootsers, but there are dozens, there are hundreds of Protestant exegetes who are carefully studying the scripture and writing sometimes these voluminous commentaries, enormous commentaries, most of them in Latin, 
Uh, and one of the goals of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series is to translate these largely Latin texts into English so that they're available for modern readers. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the expansiveness of these of these commentaries uh, has been one thing that has stuck with me. Uh, another thing that's impressed me is how many different kinds of commentaries there are. Now, when we hear the word commentary, we, we think we know what we mean by that. <laughs> and, and we have, we have in our studies, we have commentaries on the various books of the Bible and uh, various pericope. But actually in the 16th century, there were varieties of different forms of commentaries. There were some paraphrases that served uh, as commentaries. There were annotations. There were uh, expositions. There were collections of sermons. Uh, some works were more uh, grammatical, um, focusing on grammar and, and syntax. There were other commentaries that were more sermonic, others that were more like what we would expect to see as a kind of modern, historical, perhaps somewhat critical commentary. Uh, so different forms of commentaries. One thing I found really interesting is many of these commentaries uh, are coming out of the lecture hall. Uh, some of them are based upon sermons, but many of them are coming out of the lecture hall where reformers like Calvin or like Wolfgang Musculus or Martin Bootser or Peter Martyr Vermigli are actually explaining the scripture to students who will one day be pastors. And consequently, one of the hidden gems in a lot of these commentaries is the reformers are working out their pastoral theology and even specific pastoral advice to these students who will one day be serving as pastors in Switzerland or Germany or elsewhere. So these commentaries are rich with uh, pastoralia, with advice to pastors, with um, uh, descriptions of the pastoral life and what it should look like warnings for uh, young uh, men preparing for the pastorate. Uh, Really impressive. And then if I could just make one final uh, comment, I've read lots and lots of commentaries over the last few few years. And one thing I'll say is Calvin is among the very best. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Calvin scholar, but as I've read, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 different commentators during this period of time, Calvin is right there at the top in terms of his, his, the, the clarity of his um, biblical reflection. He often gives the reader uh, a variety of, of uh, interpretive options and then explains why he chooses a particular option over another. They can be polemical, but not nearly as polemical as uh, uh, many of the commentaries of his, of his day. But there's a kind of richness, a kind of um, uh, deep theological reflection that one encounters in these commentaries and and a serious attention to the biblical text that is uh, truly impressive. And I think that's one way, one reason why many uh, modern Christian readers still value Calvin's commentaries today. They, They really are that valuable and they're they're extremely rich, even within the constellation of 16th century uh, commentary writing. 
Yeah, I actually have a shelf of uh, Calvin's commentaries as one of the things that I both encourage students to look at as part of what they, when they work on their commentary work um, or, you know, their exegetical work. Um, and I encourage them to use the Reformed commentary because I find that there is so many deep, deep, rich uh, gems in those, in those commentaries and in that space. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly Reformed person myself. My own tradition in Vineyard isn't, isn't a Reformed tradition, but I do really love learning from the Reformation. Um, I would love for you to talk about what you think are some of the more valuable traits of the Reformed tradition from your perspective. And what would you say is our common misunderstandings of the Reformers or the Reformation that you wish that you could just you could just fix them forever. <laughs> oh wow! Well, those are really really great questions, Beth. Uh, so just very briefly, and maybe if you want to swing around and and uh, have a, a more detailed discussion about any of these points, we we can do that. But in terms of what I see is really the ve- the helpful biblical uh, accents that Reformed theology and Reformation theology bring to us: um, wedding word and spirit. A high view of the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, but on the other hand, a recognized recognition of the power of God's Spirit, which enlightens men's men and women's minds to be able to receive the Word, uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired uh, the words of Scripture, the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit who even in the Eucharist lifts our hearts to heaven so we can feed upon. Christ's true body in heaven in the Eucharistic meal. The prominent role of the Holy Spirit, so that it's not just, we might say, a kind of solely a bibliocentric theology, but it's a rich spiritual theology that's that's founded in, in Scripture. Uh, we could also mention um, the Reformed emphasis on doctrine and practice. When Calvin and others thought of of Reformation. It was not simply the reformation of doctrine, of new theology, but it's the reformation of practice, that God's word was to be transformative so that Christian men and women actually live differently. This concern not simply with high theology, but with lived theology. Um, I've already alluded to the importance for many in the Reformed camp uh, of the equality of the ministry, that uh, we don't have celebrity pastors. We don't have bishops or popes, uh, but rather all ministers uh, have equal standing under the authority of Christ in his word. And that then encouraged Reformed Christians to uh, establish things like presbyteries or synods or classes or general assemblies, where we have a kind of, uh, where pastors and elders function as uh, representatives of their churches, but with with no individual, as it were, taking a commanding position. Uh, now, to be sure, when we talk about uh, Reformed Christianity, we think about providence and predestination. And uh, when you read Calvin, you see, and I've already mentioned this, you see how for Calvin, these doctrines are intended for our comfort. They're intended for our comfort, knowing that the God who has chosen us in Christ is not going to unchoose us. The God who has adopted us in Christ as his sons and daughters, this glorious, gracious God 
who is our father, who invites us to call him father, is not going to disown us as his children. That at the end of the day, the Christian life is is not about me trying to stay in the family of God, but it's about God uh, enfolding me in his love and through his Holy Spirit maturing me in Christ's likeness. One other thing, too, that I think is really valuable about the Reformed tradition, and we see this throughout Calvin's writings, but we also find it in people like Zwingli and Bullinger and others, is their allergy to idolatry. Uh, in one of Calvin's writings, uh, in fact, it's in book one of his Institutes, Calvin makes the comment that the human mind is a veritable factory of idolatry. Uh, when, when Martin Luther looked at the failures of the medieval church, uh, for Luther, the central problem of late medieval Catholicism was works righteousness, merit theology. And Calvin, on one level, agreed with that. That was a, that was a, a real problem in the medieval church. But from Calvin's perspective, the primary, the central problem of late medieval Christianity and of Roman Catholic theology was idolatry. Human beings trying to fashion God in their image rather than allowing, recognizing, and worshiping the God who has fashioned us in his image, allowing God to be God. That has all sorts of implications for Reformed Christians in terms of how we understand the human sinner, how we understand Christian worship, uh, uh, practical lived Christianity. But Calvin, and here I think Calvin is really helpful. Calvin alerts us to how easy it is for non-Christians to be sure, but even for us as Christians to try to create God in our image or to try to domesticate God, to domesticate God with with philosophy, uh, to to domesticate God with our systems, our our theology, uh, to domesticate God with the way we interpret his words, to, to fashion God as if as if he were our plaything. And Calvin and other Reformed Christians warn us about the dangers of that. Now, if I remember, Beth, the other, the other half of your question, um, common misunderstandings. Uh, yeah, well, here are a couple. And these are, these are misunderstandings I, I try to gently dissuade my students from every year. <laughs> One is, I think a lot of particularly evangelicals uh, don't understand the meaning of sola scriptura. And they, they, they assume that the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura means that my only resource in doing theology is scripture, uh, scripture alone. And that is exactly not what the 16th century reformers believed or taught. Uh, for the reformers, the doctrine of sola scriptura Sola Scriptura is that God alone is the highest authority. Uh, as I judge the doctrines of men, as I as I judge the the church, uh, uh, Scripture alone is the norm by which I norm. So that for Calvin, there is value in the tradition of the church. Calvin sees value in the Apostles' Creed. After all, he required children in his catechism to memorize the Apostles' Creed. He saw value in the early church councils. Uh, He, in his 
exegetical writings will frequently quote from early church fathers and their commentators. Calvin saw the value of the church's tradition and the church's history. But what he insisted was that we must always evaluate those creeds, those traditions, those exegetical moves. We must always evaluate them by the authoritative word of God. The word of God stands above and has authority over uh, the institutions, the teachings, the creeds, the confessions of the church. So that's one thing I would uh, try to dissuade my students regarding. And if I could just mention one more. Um, the Protestant Reformation was a lot of things. Uh, but I, I try to remind my students that the, really at the very center, the Protestant Reformation was a renewal movement by Christians seeking to reform and renew the Western church. They were not trying to create a new church. Luther and later Calvin, Zwingli, they, they didn't see themselves as uh, church builders in the sense they weren't creating a new church. They were trying to reform or bring renewal uh, to the church that had existed through time. They saw the fundamental continuity of their ministries within the fabric of church history. Uh, they were not schismatics. They didn't see themselves as um, uh, breaking away from the one holy Catholic apostolic church. They were simply faithfully recovering to that church uh, faithful biblical truth. So those are two things I would I would highlight. I find that incredibly helpful because I think um, I think you're right on both counts, obviously, but I think the on the first count, especially in biblical circles where I have students come in or I'm working with people in the church, where sola scriptura for them um, is my Bible and nothing else. So why are you even teaching classes? Yeah. Um, like, why are there people who do Bible degrees? Don't you just read the Bible? Yeah. Um, and so I love that that it's about coming back to the Bible as the as the prime source, as the only space that tests other sources. Mm. And I think that that, that, you know, I often talk about the, um, the notion of like a, a canonical sense, like um, the sense of a canon as a measure, as a way of coming back and saying, this is my measuring stick. This is what I use to measure what is going on in the world um, or what, what others say or, you know, um, any kind of church doctrine or beliefs, I always come back to this measure. And so the idea that sola scriptura in some ways is is kind of like that canon in the sense of the measure um, that you come back to, I think that's really a helpful clarification. Um, and I really appreciate that because I think that that is a helpful way of re-understanding what Calvin actually intended. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. So Yeah, yeah thank you. Well, well um, just before, I think we're going to go to some icebreaker questions here, but just kind of finishing off with Calvin and the Reformation, Scott, is there um, some, I'm kind of double dipping here, but is there one book from Calvin that you wish everyone would read? And kind of a follow-up question, is there um, books about the Reformation? Um, so I, I don't know, if there's, is there one book from yeah. Calvin? Uh, besides, if you could say besides the Institutes, I think sure. hopefully people... Well, know to go there, but is there a book besides the Institutes that people could read from Calvin or should read from Calvin? Well, Ryan, if, if you allow me to cheat, let me uh, suggest two. <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. 
obvious one. It's only one, Scott. Okay. (laughs) The obvious choice, I think, is Calvin's letter to Sadaletto from 1539. It's not very long. You can sit down and read it in an an hour or so. Um, But in uh, it's a letter that uh, Calvin Calvin is in Strasbourg. He's not in Geneva at this point. The Genevans have kicked him out of town. He's gone and he's licking his wounds and doing pastoral work in Strasbourg. And uh, a Catholic bishop had then written a letter to the Genevans, inviting the Genevans to return to the Catholic fold. And the Genevan authorities don't have a pastor in-house now, now that Calvin's gone. They don't have a pastor in-house to respond to this bishop's invitation. And so the Genevan City Council asks Calvin to write a kind of refutation, a kind of rebuttal to uh, Bishop Sadaletto, explaining the Genevan Reformation and explaining why it's authentic and why the Genevans should not return to Holy Rome. So Calvin's letter to Sadaletto of 1539 is just a wonderful summation of Calvin's theology. It includes also a, a kind of a personal testimony of his own spiritual journey. Uh, in this book, we find him It's really more of a pamphlet, but we find him defending the doctrine of sola scriptura, as we've just described, and also the the nature of the priesthood. Uh, He has some important words to say about justification by grace alone through faith alone. So uh, Calvin's letter to Sadaletto is certainly at the top of my list in terms of uh, books to read of Calvin's other than the Institutes. The The other book is actually not very well known at all, although it does... It is present in an English translation. Uh, it was published 10 years later, so in 1549, called The True Method of Reforming the Church. Uh, that's a little bit longer, and it's, it's pretty polemical. Calvin is going toe-to-toe with his Catholic opponents, laying out his theology and arguing what does a, a church that was reformed according to the Word of God looks like. Look like. Uh, so that's another, another book that I'd recommend. Now, in, in terms of uh, modern books, and Ryan, were you interested in books specifically on Calvin and Reformed Christianity or more Reformation in general? I think the Reformation in general. I mean, you can choose, I guess, but so Calvin yeah. and Reformation. Yeah, you know, in terms of Reformation in general, um, I think the best survey of uh, the Reformation is still the survey text by Carter Lindbergh. Carter Lindbergh, who wrote a really fine summary of the Reformation called the European Reformations, plural, Reformations. Uh, I still think that's probably the best, from my vantage point, the best survey text. But another book that I just love, and I try to assign it to my students whenever I can, is a wonderful book by Timothy George, and it's now in its uh, second edition, and it's called The Theology of the Reformers, where uh, he gives a really excellent kind of, first of all, he begins in late medieval Catholicism, and then a really excellent description, not only of Martin Luther's life, but of his central theological commitments. And he also includes a study of Calvin and Zwingli and Menno Simons. And then in the second edition, I think he includes Tyndall. Um, So that's another, that's another wonderful um, book. if, If you're interested in the history of Reformation theology, Finally, uh, I still think that the best biography, uh, Reformation biography uh, of Luther is 
uh, Roland Bainton. Roland Bainton lived in the mid 20th century. Uh, he wrote uh, his biography of Martin Luther. It's entitled Here I Stand, Life of Martin Luther. So it's really old, 70 years old. But I think it's still the best introduction to Martin Luther and Martin Luther's thought. It's just terrific. And so I, I would highly recommend that. So we are going to move into the section that we call fun questions. Okay. Although I think that, you know, for academics, all the things we just talked about were fun. But yes. these are the, uh, the, 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 the more like, you know, uh, what we'd ask any kind of person uh, that might kind of be a fun thing to talk about. So um, first of all, if you won an all-inclusive vacation to anywhere in the world, where would you go? You know, I took some time thinking about this question, Beth. It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to travel, so it would be difficult to narrow uh, to, to narrow the uh, the focus to only a few countries. But if I had if you I had to select only one or two, it would probably be Switzerland, France, Southern France, or Italy. I just love that that part of Europe, and uh, my wife and I have had the opportunity to travel there um, frequently, and uh, we love it so much. Uh, I, I do love Asia and have spent time in Hong Kong and Seoul, Korea, and really would love to explore those areas of the world more, too. Mm-hmm. The Italy part made me smile. That's where I'm, my, I'm I was born there. So Is that right? uh, I got to give it a little extra smile. Oh, for that yeah. One, so. <laughs> and let me just say, um, isn't Rome a great city? Oh, my goodness. <sighs> I love Rome. <laughs> oh, oh. As a classicist, yeah. Oh, it's just one of my favorite places. So um, if you could describe yourself with just three words, what words would you choose? Okay. Um, I think I'd probably say determined, an encourager, and friendly. I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny. We we use the word determined of all the members of our family. And one of our running jokes is, is determined another word for stubborn? I think in our context, it might be occasionally. But for us, that determination is part of how, you know, we've made it through life as far as we have. So I love, I love determined people, yeah. just to say that. <laughs> yeah, kind of people we want to, I want to be. That's great. Um, so here's a classic question, Scott. But if you could have a coffee, tea, maybe something um, stronger than that with any historical figure, um, who would you choose and why? Okay. Now on this one, I'm going to turn the tables and ask each of you to answer that question before I do. So <laughs> there's fair, fair, fair. Let's hear Ryan and Beth's uh, oh, this favorite is conversation partner. <laughs> oh, but I like it when I get to do a couple of them. Like we all get to sit around and have a conversation. So I would love to have time with Julian of Norwich and with um, someone like Jane Austen and maybe Charlotte Bronte. And then I think I'd love to just have another like Priscilla or something like that. Like, yeah. you know, that we would all have this really interesting conversation about being women in our time yeah. and, and, you know, all the different ways we think about that. And I'm sure, I'm sure Austin and Bronte would get in some kind of argument and it'd be really, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Good answer. What, what about, about you, Ryan? Yeah, I know. It's uh, yeah. You shouldn't. Have, it's. Un, I feel like this is unfair. I uh, <laughs> yeah, did this to, to This is not the format here. No, but um, yeah, I would. I would be very interested, honestly, Calvin. Since I've written on Calvin, I, I mean, there, there's mm -hmm. the, you know, spending so much time with someone. I would be very interested um, in in 
him. Um, I think that I would be very interested in, I was thinking something similar, Beth, like a, a literary person. Um, mm. I, just, I think I'd be interested to think about how they, I think um, Jane Austen would be someone I would love to, mm. to, to think about. And, um, you know, I honestly, Augustine, I think I would be very interested to mm. to, to, to me. I think he's, yeah, I'm asked. So those, and those maybe three figures I'd be very yeah. interested in anyway. So Scott, you can say more than one if you yeah, yeah, we, we broke both the did. rule. Since <laughs> you both cheated, I get to cheat here. Yeah. We threw parties, <laughs> no. so you can throw a party if no. you'd like. <laughs> Maybe that was your goal or something. It, it yeah. Was, yeah. You know, Ryan, I, I would agree with, with Augustine. I would love love to sit down and have a conversation with Augustine. Um, a second person would be Theodore Beza. I'm right now uh, writing a biography of Bazin. Boy, it would really be helpful if I could. Yeah. <laughs> Save you a little time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Theodore Bazin lived such an interesting life. Oh my goodness, what that man endured and his experiences and all the really strategic, important moments in in late 16th century Reformation history that he encountered and engaged in uh, would be just really interesting to learn more firsthand from him. Uh, and then I, I would really love to interact with uh, Abraham Lincoln hmm. yeah. learn more about him. Yeah. This, this is amazing. Yeah. And then, so this one, um, it's not even nice to think about, but um, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be, Scott? Okay. I'll preface this by admitting when I was a boy, my family went on a vacation to New England, and there was all this wonderful seafood, and I ate none of it. I just had hamburgers every meal oh. in <laughs> days. And, you know, for some reason, I still really love a good burger. So I think give me burgers, fries, and a Coke. And, wow. And uh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I have to tell I have to tell I have to tell you a story really fast. Um recently my kids dared me cuz I love to cook and I'm I'm kind of a cooker. Cooker? That's not the right word. Um I am the kind of cook who likes to be creative in cooking. Um but uh but I the the kids dared me to make a burger as good as their favorite uh, fast food place. And so I did everything I could to make the burger like the best bacon cheeseburger with like fresh lettuce and tomatoes. And we have an air fryer and I air fried the fries. And, and, um, and at the end I was like, you have to give me the verdict. Like, did I, did I do it? And they were like, you're doing this all the time now. This is what's always happening. I was like, that is not what we (laughs) planned to be the outcome of this. But um, but I apparently I beat the fast food places. So someday, if you end up in Calgary, Scott, I'll make you a really, really, really good burger. Ooh, that? that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. <laughs> um, so we're gonna go to our se- our section now, um, where we think a little bit about uh, the life of the church. And I know we've already actually been talking quite a bit about this, but um, we're going to focus in a little more on these kinds of questions. And, you know, as, and as someone who trains pastors, how do you counsel pastors about integrating the the life of the mind and the heart for God? And or to put it in a kind of another way, um, how do you encourage pastors to integrate the the head and the heart, as it's sometimes called? Wow, you know that is a really great question, and I care a lot about that question. Uh, God has 
blessed me with so many wonderful, wonderful students here at Trinity over the years. And, you know, at the end of the day, my primary concern is not that their heads be filled with historical facts and theological understanding alone, but that they be men and women who are trusting in God and walking by faith and serving the church humbly and faithfully. Um, that's what I, that's what I really care about. I tell my students uh, almost every year, at the beginning of the academic calendar, I, I remind students that even as they're getting a lot of syllabi from their professors that are kind of laying out the curriculum for the semester, that in a sense, God's curriculum for a theological student, you know, what he cares most about is that they grow in faith, that they be men and women who trust God more. And, you know, as we see in Romans 5, and as we see in James 1 and 1 Peter 1, one of the chief ways that God does that, one of the chief ways that God strengthens our faith, refines us as Christian men and women is through adversity, through trials, through difficulty. Uh, and I think probably all of us have seen this in our own lives, that God uh, graciously uh, allows us to experience trials and difficulties so as to refine our faith and make it purer than gold. Um, so I think one of the ways that we can connect uh, high theology or, or the life of the mind uh, with our hearts is by learning how to face trials by faith. Now, that happens, uh, I think, at its best in community. And one of the gifts that God gives us as his people is to place us in Christian communities where people pray for us, where people are honest with us, uh, where people can care for us, bring a meal over to our home, you know, when our home, when our family's bereaved. Um, it seems to me that community is really important in uh, helping us learn to live out our theology, to move uh, concepts about God and about his son and about the church, move it from about the a foot from our brains to our hearts. And I've already mentioned prayer, and uh, in particular, the Psalms. I think as we pray the Psalms, uh, we have so many beautiful examples there of, of uh, people of faith trusting God in hardship, crying out in pain, uh, worshiping and praising the living God who is their God. Um, so uh, encouraging students to pray the Psalms. I think is another way to um, to connect head and heart. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think for all of us who are theological educators, the goal is not simply to master the word, but to be mastered by the word, you know, to obey it. Not not out of a kind of servile fear, but rather we obey the we obey the God whom we love, because we trust in His goodness and trust that He cares for us, that he knows best for us. Um, so uh, I think I think I would, you know, I would highlight community and, and uh, prayer, the Psalms, being mastered by the word, uh, 
being accountable in relationships. Um, and finally, and this again, it, it's, it's related to what I've already said, realizing that theology ultimately needs to end with doxology. And if we've only talked about God and haven't talked to God, our hearts are impoverished and we've, we've really not done the work of theology. We've done a caricature of it. Mm-hmm. Scott, that's so powerful. You know, it reminds me just this week I had a, a time, my class ended a little early and we had been talking about actually that language, ref, the refiner's fire, um, the language in Malachi, we get it in Isaiah as well. And the process of, of purification through struggle. And it it ended in class with us sharing as a community with each other, some of the deep struggles that my students were having. And, and we closed our time in prayer and it was such a powerful space Hmm. where the word of God became a time of community and a time of prayer and a time of, of praise before God for the goodness of God. Hmm. And, and it feels to me like it's just so many of the pieces that you're describing hmm. that draw those, those, those things together between what we know of God and how we experience God. Hmm. Um, and that, that's just so, that's so beautiful. Thank you for that, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, um, <clears throat> This is kind of related to the previous section, but you've written a whole book on Calvin's company of pastors and how he, and we've talked about him as a pastor. How do you think that the um, theologies of Luther and Calvin, we haven't talked a lot about Luther, but if you'd like to bring him in, uh, we'd welcome that, um, could help the church today. And even if, if you're willing to share, is there ways that you feel sad about the the modern church, the ways that you think the church needs to be reformed today and maybe even reformed in light of some of the things of the Reformation. Do you have any uh, yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. You know, I the the reformers of the 16th century, and thinking particularly of Luther and Calvin, um, had a vision for a theology that would penetrate every aspect of human life. That the gospel of Jesus Christ had implications for social welfare and for marriage and for politics and for economics, as well as the life of the church. They, they really didn't have this sacred secular divide. They saw the, the word of scripture and the central message of scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ having implications for the whole of the Christian's experience on earth. Um, I think sometimes in our contemporary world, we create the, these dis, kind of this disjunction between sacred and secular that, that is not helpful and doesn't allow us to live holistically as God's people in the here and now. Uh, certainly, I think that's one, one important message that the Reformation uh, makes that, that could be reappropriated, I think, in our in our Christian experience today. I've already mentioned idolatry and especially within the reformed tradition, a heightened sense, a heightened suspicion of um, the human's propensity to exalt oneself and to steal God's glory. And, you know, when there are, there are many, many, many wonderful, faithful, evangelical reformed, Protestant uh, gospel ministers who are who are extolling Jesus and faithfully proclaiming His word, 
But unfortunately, sometimes in the media, the people who are, we're drawn to, who we are, uh, who are, uh, who catch our attention, are celebrity pastors. Who I think Calvin, at the end of the day, would say these people are stealing God's glory. Uh, and congregations that um, that uh, adore a pastor or who are ultimately fixated on music rather than on the um, the one who's created them, the one who's recreated them in Christ. The, again, so the, I think being more attentive, more um, uh, suspicious of our human hearts and the proclivity of our hearts to try to domesticate God or at least to ignore God and to exalt human things over divine things. One, one of the... Um, and this kind of relates tangentially to your question, Ryan, but one of the things that, one of the resources within the Reformation that I don't think was worked out uh, adequately is the notion of the priesthood of all believers. Now, to be sure, when you read Luther and when you read Calvin, they have a robust doctrine of what we sometimes call the priesthood of all believers. And, and by that, they not only mention, they not only meant that uh, in Christ, we now have direct access to God. That's certainly part of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But for Luther and for Calvin, it's broader than that. Uh, the priesthood of all believers includes the priestly duty to worship God. Um, uh, priest, priests offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And all Christians are called to be worshipers. But also, in the language of Luther, uh, the priesthood of all believers means that we are all, as he put it, little Christs one to another. In other words, we're all called to minister God's word one to another. Yes, there are certain people who are raised up with special roles, callings to be pastors, uh, to be, we might say, clergymen. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all called to be uh, people who bring God's word to one another, whether it's through uh, words of encouragement, words of rebuke, words of wisdom, we all minister one to another. All Christians are ministers in that sense. And this beautiful doctrine uh, that is articulated by people like Luther and Calvin, I'm not sure really gets worked out uh, in a fulsome way in the 16th century or even in our own day. Uh, and I, I, I think this is a, a theological um, insight that that merits further development in many of our churches. Um, and I think one of the ways to approach that is by recovering a, a, an appreciation for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, as we see Paul talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in First Corinthians twelve and Ephesians four and Romans. Uh, Romans 12. Um, so there were, I guess what I'm trying to say is there were there were resources within the Reformation that weren't always recognized or fully fully developed and I think that's that's one of them. I just think that there's something really powerful about the idea of the Holy Spirit giving gifts to all people. And we see that, we see, we see Peter preaching that um, on the day of Pentecost um, in talking about the fulfillment of Joel, you know, the pouring out of the gifts to, to all, to everyone. And, um, and there's something really beautiful about the idea that, that, that allows us to minister to one another, 
mm-hmm. to create a community where we care for one another. And so um, I love I love that. And it's not something that I really knew uh, that piece of the of the reformers. So I'm really thankful for that. So thank you for sharing that with yeah. us, Scott. I, sh- I, I should, to be fair to Calvin, I should probably add that in, in Calvin's Geneva, he did have a vision for lay ministry in, in the role of elders and deacons. So Calvin did, he recognized the importance of this, but in terms of really unleashing all of God's people for the work of ministry, I, I think that didn't happen in Calvin's world. And Unfortunately, in many of our churches, I think it still doesn't happen. No, that's great. One of my favorite quotes, I, I won't get it perfectly, but it's that Bonhoeffer, sometimes the Christ, you know what I'm talking about in Life Together, where he's thinking about this, I think maybe in light of Luther, and he says, the Christ in my brother is sometimes stronger than the Christ in me, mm-hmm. you know? And I think yeah. that is kind of to what you're saying, that, that, that God intends to bring us to himself to to mature us through one another and i think maybe he was working out of that reformation principle that's still we're still we still maybe haven't fully appreciated so oh man i think that's a great point ryan and we should just make a call out for that book bonhoeffer's life together what a wonderful book but i think you're right i think he's drawing from the resources of luther's theology and ultimately uh, uh the bible's message yeah you know, I wonder if this is part of, you know, people have been asking me a lot in my ministerial roles. I, uh, I'm part of the Vineyard National Team, um, and so I help with pastors with different questions. And one of the questions they have is, you know, how do we deal with how fractured we are right now in the church? What do we do? What do we? How do we? How do we find a way to to move past these spaces of such deep difference or such deep uh, division. Um, and I wonder if there's something really powerful about what you just described, Scott, that, that is a, is a, is, could be a, a healing balm to that, um, in the way that we, we see the image of God in each other. We care for each other in that. It's been a real, real pleasure speaking with you today, Scott, and thanks for uh, teaching us about Calvin and also just teach us um, about the church, reflecting about how the church can be more what God calls it to be. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time today. Wow, it's just a great privilege to be with you. And Beth, nice to meet you. And Ryan, nice you too. great to see one of my former students doing so well. Bless you, brother. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgentheology.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, We'd love it if you would share the show on your social media or in person with a friend, a church member, a teacher, or a colleague. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.